hello everybody. Hello. Welcome. Uh, this is Barack Obama. <laughs> Thank you uh, for inviting me to your lovely country. Uh, let me be clear. Uh, I'm here to introduce you to uh, the finest podcaster that I've ever heard. Uh, please welcome Spaghetti for Brains, Ben and Norm. <laughs> oh, thank you, Mr. President. Thank you, and thank you, Amy, for having us at Burning House Books here. Yeah, thanks, Barry. Thanks, Barry. See you later. No oh. problem. I'm going to go uh, have some haggis and some iron brew. Thanks. Oh, yeah, I should get the iron brew. <laughs> So, uh, welcome to our first ever and perhaps only ever uh, live show. Uh, we're here in Glasgow at Burning House Books, and uh, this will be broadcast probably like, uh, I don't know, like a few days or something like that. And uh, the, the reason that we're doing this is because, um, for those of you who don't know, Norm and I have never actually podcasted in the same room as each other. We've been in the same room as each other many times. Oh, the things we've done in the same room as each other. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, what, one of the things that we thought would be funny was to just like do a live thing, and it's uh, it's it's actually very strange because a lot of the time there's like a delay when we talk, yeah. you know, because we're on like Zoom or something like that or FaceTime, and he's like, on the in the United States, I'm over here, and like so there'd be like a thing where we have to like we're like talking about something we get really heated or whatever or like something is funny and then there's like the delay so like when you go to interrupt someone in a natural flow of conversation and you know how like they tend to just stop talking when you interrupt them a bit there'll be like a big lag so like I, like for listeners of the show who don't know this like the fact that they're you don't hear that is because I'm so fucking good at editing <laughs> and the software you know what I mean it's like a skill that I've had to develop over years but to introduce Norm to uh, Glasgow you know he's been here for a few days one of the things that we thought that he should do was try Glasgow's finest. Urn brew. <laughs> uh, this is the old and unimproved recipe. Uh, so, uh, for the listeners at home, I have an orange can in my hand, and I believe it's just as orange on the inside. Uh, and I'm going to sample it right now, and you get the live reacts. <laughs> All right. Ah, smells like bubble gum. <laughs> um, and it almost tastes like it too. Yeah, yeah it tastes like bad bubble gum. <laughs> I regret this already. All right. <laughs> I mean, I, you know what's funny is if you look, like people love that shit, man. They're like when they when Scots leave Scotland, they're always like, "I miss Iron Brew, I miss Iron Brew," and I, I guess I can understand that because we like some disgusting things, don't we? I mean, like yes, like cola. Yeah. Well, no, everybody loves cola, but like, like I don't know, broccoli rub on pizza. That's not disgusting. Now, I, well, you don't think it's disgusting. Yeah. But I bet that these people would. You guys ever had broccoli rub on pizza? No, yeah, exactly. Have you had the original recipe broccoli rub there? <laughs> Not the new broccoli rub with, with 18, corn syrup and saccharin. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the 1892 broccoli yeah, rub. Yeah. The one that they literally brought over to Ellis Island with a bunch of Italians. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, Heirloom Sprite is pretty good, too, <laughs> if you've ever had it. God. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know. Yeah. You, you guys, you guys uh, are probably wondering... Uh, 
what we're going to talk about, and uh, we're kind of wondering what we're going to talk about as well. We looked at the news. Yeah, Monday, uh, Ben said, you know, we should uh, talk about what we're going to talk about and have a little plan. And I said, why don't we wait till Thursday, just in case anything happens (laughs) that we should plan on talking about. And so, spoiler alert. We're going to try not to talk about that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, uh, what I call the elephant in the room that is heavily armed yeah. <laughs> and murders thousands of people every year. Yeah. In fact, uh, this particular elephant, uh, it was just reported in CNN, kills more, ha- since 1998, has killed more, uh, more, so- more children and young people than it has soldiers and police officers combined in all of the conflicts that the United States is involved in. Hmm. So yeah, that elephant, we're going to try to keep it over in the, uh, in the back room there. Yeah. Uh, there's not really much to say about it. So, um, but I don't know if you want to talk local stuff, right? I don't know, like not super local. I mean, in fact, you could argue that it isn't local at all, depending on your politics. But uh, in the UK, one of the big things in the news has been um, like the party gate thing just won't end. You know, the police did their investigation and then they found that the Tories were very naughty boys and they got their little spanking with a little paddle like they do in private school or whatever. And then they then they released the report that was like more damning somehow than the police's. I don't know how they worked that one out. But uh, Boris Johnson has recently uh, defended himself and Prime Minister's question time, uh, Prime Minister's questions, with uh, by pointing the finger at uh, at our favorite, our our, our beloved, wonderful uh, favorite Dick Stormer, who uh, uh, we, we refer to him as Dick Stormer, but his name is actually Keir Starmer. <laughs> For those unfamiliar with the lore of the podcast, yeah. that's a thing that I like. Uh, I, I don't know if any of you speak Farsi, but. <laughs> Here in Farsi means dick, and like not the medical term. It's like the most vulgar way to say dick in Farsi is kir. It's like it means like cock, not even cock. That's too like something much worse. And then doesn't like Starmer also? No. All right, no. No. Plus they would say estarmer because they pronounce s's in the beginning of words that follow are followed by consonants as. Yes. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. So, Kier Astarmer. Cock Astarmer. Cock Astarmer. Yeah, yeah. Cock Astarmer. Yeah. So, we refer to him as Dick Stormer, but we're not the only ones who've developed a, a nickname for Kier Starmer. So, uh, the, the, the fucking poor man's Donald Trump, the Prime Minister of Britain, Boris Johnson, the only thing that's similar about him is the fact that he's like a blustering fucking fool with weird hair, right? No other, he's at least not even funny, but he tried to be funny. He tried to be, you can see him struggling as well, like reaching to be funny like. Trump to be that kind of guy to be that kind of like populist funny guy I'm gonna like make fun of these people I'm just gonna like own them and then do a mic drop and so in in like uh, PMQs he tried to to, to do a funny on uh, Dick Stormer and he ended up calling him beer korma yeah beer korma he said he said literally he said like um he's like you know i'm, I'm not gonna mince words of like i'm uh sir beer korma and you're like oh my god mate just like oh god he's I, as like the eight writers that i had that wrote that for me yeah. told me to say yeah and as and you can see when you're watching the video that he's just like working his way up to the punchline he's just like getting ready sitting there like on his little podium going like uh mr speaker blah 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 blah, blah. i've got a zinger coming here you know what i mean can't wait to get with this one so let me not mince my words beer corman you could just see like everybody else just being like 
Yeah. Like even the Tories with their like, just trying really hard. It's like all the YouTube cameras rolling. Yeah, yeah. Are you ready for this one? <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm on TikTok. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, you want to explain to our American guests what a what a beer korma is oh, yeah. <laughs> and why why a beer korma is? <laughs> so, uh, Kier, so uh, Kier Starmer. <laughs> Is the leader of the opposition of the Labour Party. Um, they're not much of an opposition, though, because they seem to agree with the Tories on everything but the fact that they should be the ones doing what they're doing. But um, so in, in the UK, uh, he there was like the, the lockdown. There were several lockdowns. It went on for ages, obviously. And every politician known to man in the UK seems to have been just like going out, partying and eating curry throughout the whole of the lockdown, including uh, the, the, the fucking prime minister, who was just recently, it was like a photo of him contradicting everything that he said. Again, like Trump, but not funny. Just like, just sitting there with like a big, like a fucking pims in his hand or something like that. But then he's pointing the finger at Keir Starmer because Keir Starmer also went and had a, a curry. And uh, so uh, a korma is a type of curry. And it's the blandest type of curry, which seems, I gotta say, he's right on that count, isn't he? Because like, because uh, Keir Starmer, far and away the blandest curry of the bunch isn't he yeah. he's like the korma you know he's like there's like the one with no chili in it so you're yeah. saying all politicians are uh are bland and hypocritical <laughs> <laughs> i would never insinuate such a thing norm mm -hmm. no i would never insinuate such a thing no <laughs> they're extraordinary in fact i'd think that um it's funny because uh the, like i always thought that being from the united states you know i was from like the most disgusting like perverted pedophilic awful country in the world but then again like you know then we then i moved here and like i saw i saw that wonder but then you know at least half of the country recognizes it because like i don't know if you guys saw that like uh prince prince uh prince billy bonnie prince billy was uh, at, a, <laughs> at a liverpool match and the fans when they started singing uh god save the queen or whatever not the sex pistols version um they all started booing which I thought must have been really funny and embarrassing for him. But, um, yeah. but then, like, they send their best to us, don't they? Like, all of the, the former colonies of, uh, of the, the empire that on which the sun never sets, mm -hmm. they send their best to us. Like, like uh, the, the, the famous South African uh, hard worker and genius, brain genius, Elon Musk. Yeah, yeah. You know, we get, we get the best of them, don't we? You Our know? former benefactor. Yes. He was oh, going to purchase our podcast. We have to make a little disclaimer yeah, here, yeah. guys. Yeah, because like, uh, he, did, he did say he was going to buy a controlling share in our podcast. But now he's, he's, he's like uh, getting cold feet about it because yeah. he's worried about the number of bots on our podcast. You yeah, know? yeah. <laughs> and the number of trolls and the number of the times we've trolled. He's heard us making jokes about Chairman Mao and landlords and stuff. And like he was like, oh, no, I'm not sure I can go through with this. So yeah, and, yeah. and also, I think that... He really just wanted to buy the podcast to offload some of his Tesla stock. And it turns out that buying a worthless podcast isn't going to be a good use of that. And he needs something better. So, yeah. He's so, gonna, yeah. I'm sure that you guys, uh, did you hear about this? So there was an article in Business Insider that came out last week about, um, about Elon Musk doing... Uh, so, basically, the thing that made this interesting to me is not just the fact that, like, he's a, a fucking sex pest, which you could have probably told from anything is like look at him uh but but also the fact that like i just think that the the details of the way that he tried to sexually harass his staff was like really eerily reminiscent of jeffrey epstein so in business insider they were talking about this uh this thing right so so because he makes all of his staff sign uh non-disclosure agreements 
None of them have been able to talk about it directly. So the friend of one of these women who he sexually harassed came forward and said, my friend has has said this and everything. But the thing is, she's got such a huge amount of information that it makes it a credible allegation. And so it's being investigated by Business Insider. And the, the, the thing that's funny about this story as well is that Business Insider was approached by this source who then, you know, they then contacted Elon Musk for comment. And he said, they're quoting him, there's a lot more to this story. So I'm gonna need time to, uh, I'm gonna need time to like uh, re reply properly to this uh, allegation, right? And they were like, well, how long do you need? And he said, I'll reply by nine o'clock tonight, right? So by nine o'clock that night, he never replied. They contacted him again, like what's going on? But what he did do, <laughs> he went a, few on hours, a few hours after, yeah, he went on Twitter and he announced that even though he's voted Democrat most of his life because he felt like they at least pretended to be, you know, the party that cared about people, he's now going to vote Republican and now watch their dirty tricks campaign against me unfold. Yep, yep, yep. And so that boy, was... did it ever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that has to take the place of uh, of Kevin Spacey coming out in the face of his allegations yeah, 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 yeah. as the as as like the the most brain damaged sort of response yeah. to uh to to just accusations right. yeah, and yeah. evidence of being a, a sexual predator it's like they come up and they're like wait a minute are you like a pedophilic sexual predator and he's like hey come on come on man i'm look i've never told anybody this before but i'm gay and you're like oh, okay i was like what's that got to do with it you're like you know what but anyway so this is the bit of the story here. So a flight attendant for SpaceX, which is Elon Musk's company, right? They call it SpaceX, but I think it's actually just his planes, isn't it? It's not, it's not just the thing. It's not like, like, that's like his planes as well. Not just the ones that go to space, the ones that just go into the air. Right? I don't think he has planes, but SpaceX, yeah, it started, it's a... Whoa, whoa, whoa. So does that mean that he has flight attendants for spaceships? No. I, I think it was just the company plane. Like, oh. I don't think it's an official SpaceX, like, vehicle. Those are the oh, rockets, most right. of which blow up. Right. <laughs> they wouldn't need attendance Some of which those, make yeah. it, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a good way to get rid of witnesses, isn't it? You know, just, like, yeah, send yeah. them up in your fucking piece of shit that doesn't work. Like, the Tesla's exactly, here, have a free Tesla. Yeah. Yeah. It might decapitate you or fucking set on fire and lock you in while it does so. But, you know, whatever. It's all right. Just don't ever tell anybody about the thing that <laughs> we know, did. Like, you know what I mean? Plausible so, uh, deniability. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So, flight attendant for SpaceX said Elon Musk asked her to do more during a massage documents show. The billionaire founder exposed his penis to her and offered to buy her a horse, according, <laughs> according to claims and declaration. After she reported the incident to SpaceX, Musk's company paid her $250,000 as part of a severance agreement, right? Uh, so there's a thing, apparently, uh, it says in the article that it's, it was like not unusual, apparently, for him to offer horses. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For them to insist on the, the, the stewardesses and flight attendants and stuff learning massage. But also, they insisted on them doing it on their own dime, right? So they wanted them to pay for themselves to get accredited as, like, masseuses. Or Which masseurs. is, again, eerily similar to Jeffrey Epstein, except I don't think he made them pay for it. No, I no, think Because no. he, he wasn't paid for their holiday. training. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's so, But the thing is, is like, when, let me, when we get to the, like, I don't want to, like, uh, trigger anybody here, but, like, you know, what, what he did was basically, like, the same thing as Jeffrey Epstein, which is, like, he, you know, she, like, shows up to give him this massage, and he's fucking butt naked except for, like a, like, a, like, a sheet over him. And then, like, when she starts, like, giving him the massage or whatever, he's just, like, 
I'll give you like I'll give you like a, a horse. I'll give you a horse <laughs> if you if you like go all the way. And it's it's like crazy to me the way that like the Epstein's and the Musks of the world like obviously. You can understand that people with that much money have, uh, there, there's like all these studies that show and shit that like the more money you have, the less empathy you have, right? So this is like a little unsurprising that someone would be capable of doing this when they have this much money. But another thing that's strange about it is just how the, the thread of all of these different types of incidents and the way that these people behave, and it makes you wonder about the psychology of someone that has that much money slash that little empathy. And what is sex for these people? Like, you've got to wonder, like, what is it? Because it seems to be entirely transactional. And yeah, and it seems to be entirely based around the exertion of power. Right. You know, it's more about the offer of the horse than the penis. Right, right, <laughs> right, know? yeah. Like, I doubt he's, like, enjoying... Because, like, everybody who is normal knows that having, like awkward sex with someone who kind of doesn't want like if you don't really want to be you know when you're like younger or something and you're like you're you've in these situations when you're like afterwards you're kind of like oh i kind of wish i hadn't done that like that was kind of like a bad show like i imagine every time that elon musk has sex it's like that do you know what i mean but he paid for it and that's the thing that you know he like dominated someone and made them feel bad and that was the thing that made him feel good yeah or whatever and it's like that's just that's just like so sickening and weird yeah and like oh it's, like, it's almost like a uh a serial murderer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's like a serial yeah. killer. Oh my god. But Elon. uh you know, after he after these allegations finally came out and the uh the 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 the, the sick the the sick campaign against him began. <laughs> the uh, Democrats, it's the Democrats. Yeah, yeah, yeah the yeah. Democratic campaign against him escalated. Uh, his rebuttal is that do you have it up so there because the, uh, I gotta I gotta give credit where credit is due this person on Twitter called Croza Luxembourg tweeted one of the best so Elon himself was in like a Twitter exchange with someone who was like calling him like a fucking pervert or whatever and he said but I have a challenge to this liar who claims their friend saw me exposed describe just one thing anything at all scars tattoos that isn't known by the public she won't be able to do so because it never happened this is what he tweeted and then someone <laughs> quote tweeted like, this oh oh i sexually assaulted you name one messed up thing about my penis that people don't already know <laughs> name one thing that isn't already common knowledge about my messed up penis god yeah because apparently he's had like some sort of weird mechanical thing inserted into it. I mean, that's like yeah. the rumor or whatever that he's like, you know, he's all in the tech and all that shit. So yeah, he's got like a vibrator in there. Yeah. And, 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 it, and, and sometimes when it, when it goes in, it gets stuck and then it, and it sets fire and you can't get it out. Yeah, 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 just yeah, like yeah. a Tesla. You know what I mean? It's got, a, it's an autopilot for the penis. <laughs> it just suck. And much like the Tesla autopilot, it, it's not really an autopilot. It's just kind of an assist. You got to still keep your hands on it. Like the Tesla. Okay. Let's oh, stop God. with that. <laughs> I got to say, I'm really sorry. I was just like so disgusting. It's like when you, you imagine like talking about these things and then you actually start talking in a room full of people, especially when it's the two of us alone on, on like a, a Zoom call or something. It's like one thing, but in a room full of people, I'm sitting here talking about this disgusting man's yeah. disgusting sex life. And I'm like, oh, God, I'm Yeah, we can edit this shit out of the podcast, know, but not, you <laughs> can't edit it out of your brains. Yeah, yeah, You're yeah. stuck with it forever. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. I apologize <laughs> sincerely. But, All right, let's change the subject slightly. We'll stay on dildos uh <laughs> yeah speaking of dildos actually did you hear about george w bush giving this speech but basically he did a george w bush did a, a wonderful uh like a freudian slip that i will just like be thankful for him for for the rest of my life 
So uh, this is him. The result is an absence of checks and balances in Russia and the decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. I mean, of Ukraine. <laughs> Iraq. Yeah, that's why he made that mistake. Yeah, because he's, he's 75. 75. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Not, not a Freudian slip. I love this motherfucker laughed. Yeah. He laughed afterwards. It's like they're fucking, it's like they honestly, they have no respect for us. You know what I mean? Like they just, they're just like, they're just like, you're punks. You're all punks. I mean, of course they don't. Yeah. Yeah. Why would they? Yeah. Why would he? I mean, you kind of knew that as well. Cause like Norm and I, when we first met, it was like right up, it was like the round, like a year before the invasion of Iraq Mm -hmm. in 2003. And like, we went to the anti-war protests and stuff. There was like the famous thing, February 15th, 2003. There was like one of the biggest uh, demonstrations against a war that ever took place. And it was like, hadn't even happened yet. And uh, yeah, I mean, what was it? it was and like he a- called it a focus group. He said, I don't make decisions based on a focus group. When someone mentioned that, like, the largest demonstration in human history is happening uh, in protest of this war. Yeah, yeah. Now watch this drive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah this motherfucker. Yeah, but, uh, you know, not everyone hates on him. Michelle is good friends with him. <laughs> Gave him some gum at a baseball game. <laughs> You guys like the Ellen show? <laughs> He's friends with the Ellen. <laughs> that always get me. Like uh, that's a that's a good video to watch sometime. Is after Ellen got in a little bit of trouble for like, you know, palling around with him. She went on his show and like de- her show and like defended it. And was like, when I say I love everybody, that's everybody. Even the fucking biggest war, war criminal, criminal of all time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, who like left like blood that I can't get off my hands when he shook it. Like, but yeah. uh, yeah. It is crazy. <sighs> this is the thing though about like Bush's legacy and about the way we remember stuff, you know, is that like people don't like give a shit or they don't remember because mm-hmm. like the news cycle is like whatever, a few yeah. days. Even like Buffalo. Remember there was like the shooting in Buffalo the other day? It's like gone now. All we can oh, think yeah. about is all this other shit. Oh, uh, well, I mean, there's some other, other, t- again, here's a, see, the elephant, there. Fucking <laughs> elephant, man, get your tusk out of my way. Yeah. You know? But now I think it's crazy the way that people remember. And I guess like the older you get, cause when I'm like in my early forties, the older you get, you see people who are really young and then they get a little older, they become adults, even though they still seem young to you or whatever, they're younger than you. And they don't have the same kind of memory. And I guess everybody's experienced this where if you have like a younger sibling or like nieces or nephews or any of that shit. They kind of like have a different view of the '90s or the or the the, the aughts or something, or like, and, and you you wonder like, how are they going to remember these times and stuff? Because I think that we did it when we were younger, right? You probably like thought like the '60s or the '70s were really cool, mm-hmm. and then you talk, you meet someone who lived through the '70s, and they're like, the '70s fucking sucked, man. You yeah. know what I mean? It was just like one long drawn out like it was like a, a a revolution in a way. You know what I mean? It was like the birth of neoliberalism, this like horrible long ass birth. And I mean, the '60s were far enough away from our youth as the '90s are from now. Right. You exactly. Know, so the way we look back fondly on the '60s, yeah. people look back at the shit that we. Yeah, <laughs> the with. '90s. Yeah. There's like '90s parties and stuff where yeah. you're like, oh yeah, but I'm I'm pretty sure that they aren't including like the Battle of Seattle or something like that, or like, <laughs> or like what, like bombing of Kosovo. You know what I mean? Like in, in the Balkans. You know what I mean? Like that shit was fun. Yeah, remember that? That was great. What is the thing that people think about the 90s now then? What are like what do young people think about the 90s now? What do you think it is? Uh 
sitcoms. Oh, right. <laughs> well, in fairness to them, like if I'm feeling stressed or upset, like Seinfeld is my go-to thing. Because mm-hmm, yeah. I want to, I, I, I don't know, like Seinfeld is like the best world to be in when you have actual problems because like there's no problems in it like everybody's problems in it are like oh i don't feel comfortable having to like confront someone about this thing that makes me feel uncomfortable and everybody's like dressed in these ridiculous clothes well i call it ridiculous i'm wearing like a jacket that looks like a fucking seinfeld jacket. yeah, yeah. Right now, but... jerry is like is like a comedian who does like club shows but he has like a nice new york city apartment i'm wearing it <laughs> he's, like, like, he's in like midtown yeah as well. yeah kramer does nothing and he yeah. lives right next to him right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. And George does even less. George just like floats from well, no, George works for the Yankees or something. You yeah, know. at one point, but there's yeah. a big long part yeah. where he doesn't have a job. Yeah, oh, that's right. <laughs> in Queens, that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. He yeah. was with his mom in Queens. His mom and his dad, yeah. We're being oh heckled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> By some like some petite bourgeois. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, uh, to be fair, we're occupying her space. Yeah, yeah that's true. <laughs> well, I think we should take like a short break, and then we come back and do the second half. We got a few things prepared. Unless you have, uh, unless you have some sort of uh, thing up your sleeve there. No, I mean no. we could go. I mean, I just had uh, uh, rent stuff to talk about. And, you know, <laughs> I was going to talk about crunchy bars. Oh right, we'll do Woo! that first. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm a big fan of the crunchy bar. We don't have them in the States. You don't have crunchies in the States? Oh, no, of course not. No, no. Uh, And so last time I came here, you know, obviously I had me some crunchy bars. Uh, But now I came back and there's just, there's so much more to the crunchy experience now. There's, there's, there's crunchy pudding. There's, there's like the little yogurt cups, half yogurt, half crunchy. There's spreadable crunchy stuff. Like who knows like how, how deep the crunchy well goes. But it was like very, it was very American of you guys to, to have so many crunchy products now. It feels like being in, a, in an American supermarket where you can't get baby formula and like you probably can't afford the gas to get there. You probably can't afford the dentist you'll need afterwards. But man, is there a variety of yeah, uh, yeah. of different uh, crunchies and and twicks? The consolation prize, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. That's that's capitalism is is crunchy yogurt. Yeah. <laughs> and now we can take a short intermission. Yeah. <laughs> It's the honeycomb. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, don't you guys have free dentists here? Technically, technically, but you can't, but there no one none of the dentists will let you. They don't See, this is the thing is like you guys have the creation of the NHS. Just Yeah, and you guys keep stripping away you know, bits are becoming more and more America. You know, you're taking away defunding the NHS. You're, you're making people pay school fees more and more. Uh, you know, you're joining us in our war ventures left and right. And, and you know, it's like you, you don't skip a beat just like we don't. But but yet, like, you're so pissed off about this party gate shit. It's, like, crazy to me that, like, that's the thing that, that like, everyone has been pissed off about, about for months now. But, like... You know, good, I guess. Yeah, you I know, guess so. like, <laughs> I know it is funny when people get really angry about it. Like, a lot of the people I work with are not like, I think that they would just read like 
the very vanilla news or whatever. And and those those people are a good litmus test for like the rest of the country, really. Because I think when you're in any way into like any weird shit, like weird culture, weird arts, or weird politics, anything left of center, you tend to be surrounded by other people with similar interests. And it can be a little easy to get away from the people who have like absolutely no idea about anything except for what they read in like the, the, the tabloids and watch on TV. And those people are really genuinely fucking furious about Partygate because I think one of the underlying like pillars of the the moral fabric of society is this idea that we've suffered through this pandemic for like two years or more, which is true. People have. They watched loved ones die, weren't able to go to the funeral. That happened to my family. My my auntie died very early in the pandemic and my, my family weren't able to go to her funeral. She died in one of Cuomo's fucking care home. So uh, the, the governor of New York basically killed my aunt, right? <laughs> and didn't um, count the death. And didn't count the death, exactly. Um, but yeah, and so like, but here, you know, people were able, like not able to go to their loved one's funerals or they were like, like people were suffering through like loneliness and depression, all this shit, losing all this money because they couldn't work. Maybe they didn't have access to the furlough. They struggled, but they had this sort of weird sense that's a hangover from like the second world war about like you know britain like coming together and doing this thing being like this great nation and uh having this like great uh generation uh, you know they're like modeled on the, the greatest generation of the people who lived through the blitz and stuff which is fair enough because you can see that that's like a a blueprint that's a thing in people's minds it's an, it made such an impression historically in like uh the the kind of public memory and stuff and people have suffered really badly through the pandemic and everything and i mean it's also worth noting that like literally 100 like fucking 100,000 people died or something like that here's one of the worst death rates in the whole world uh, per capita in the UK it's like second only or maybe third only to like the states you know um and then you have these fucking assholes going and eating uh, kormas and drinking pims cups and shit and having parties like a, like it doesn't like the rules don't apply to them and that does really piss them off but it is funny because you want to be like man if that shit pissed you off what do you hear about like what do you hear about the way that like what do you yeah. hear about like pfi yeah. what do you hear about like these american companies that are buying up like the fucking gp surgeries like you don't know the fucking half of it what do you hear about like what like how much money they give to raytheon and like bae systems what do you fucking hear you think like you think it's bad that some people don't work for a living like my I feel like brother everybody in knows. christ yeah, 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 yeah. Like, exactly yeah <laughs> like everybody knows someone who doesn't work right who's like never worked who just like goes on the dole and like stays on the dole for the rest of their life like everybody knows one person like that so it makes it look like there's a lot of those people but there are like like statistically they are like a very small minority and that money that they cost the taxpayer man like if you think that that's bad what do you see what do you see what they're spending on fucking like weapons that they send to fucking saudi arabia and israel like wait just wait until you look at those numbers you're gonna no. be fucking furious but you know, they never, you never hear about that shit, obviously, because of course you won't, because these people operate very well. I mean, if we want to take a lesson in class solidarity, I got to say, you got to look at like the bourgeoisie, like they've got some serious class solidarity. They got that shit down. Mm -hmm. They are experts at class solidarity. No one can move like a, like in as a class in unison with total solidarity, like the fucking ruling class They're They're really fucking good at it. So, yeah, but I think that that's, that's the, you think this is going to shake people of, but no, no, not yeah, necessarily, yeah. because what is it? What does it ask of you at the end of the day? If you look at it like a movie, what's the moral of the story? 
of like Partygate is that you gotta like vote in some other people or you go I fucking hate these movies I hate all of these movies I'm gonna stop watching these fucking movies probably you know yeah. what I mean so like and that means just like people going like yeah 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 exactly yeah you should be storming the fucking stage ripping down the screen and making your own fucking movie you know what I mean we but, need more honest and or less bland politicians yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> exactly but anyway, yeah, that was that was my little uh, my little spiel there, mm. my pre-break spiel. I think that it's probably a good time to take a break and uh, grab yourself a drink and uh, use the loo if you need to, because I know that we're sitting in the way mm. here. But yeah, <laughs> uh, talk to you know since we have President Obama here, you know, talk to him if you want to get an autograph or anything like that. <laughs> you know, uh, he's got some very interesting thoughts about Islam and eating dogs. You should probably <laughs> talk to him about that. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, open to talk to anyone. Assalamu alaikum. <laughs> you guys ever had dog haggis? Al <laughs> Akbar, take a break. <laughs> See you in a few minutes. We rolling? We yeah, we're, I, I stayed rolling the whole time. So. Oh really? Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So everything. I was bad whispering said, very bad things <laughs> into the microphone. <laughs> I'm so stupid. Um, Kramer, yeah, <laughs> Kramer, Kramer. No, no. <laughs> um, yeah. So for the second half, like because we spent so much of the last several episodes talking about housing. Like there was a uh, the last like official episode was called Critical Rent Theory, which uh, yeah, which is um, the one where we talked about uh, we read those articles from people from like talking about would anybody please consider the poor landlords and then. Uh, and you know, it, their costs have gone up, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Actually, speaking of which, I did see something earlier that I wanted to, to tell you guys about. So I, I, I looked at this website, which is very unfortunately named CIA Landlords. Um, <laughs> like, really unbelievable, right? So they have, like, they, they do this article every year where they talk about, like, the general costs of being a landlord. And so... Last year, they published one that said, on average, UK landlords need to spend £1,134 per month, which includes average monthly mortgage costs, monthly fees for maintenance, etc. And then the version of the article from this year said, on average, UK landlords need to spend £592.60p, which includes average monthly mortgage costs, monthly fees, etc. So the cost of being a landlord has gone down by, like, like... A hundred, like by like fifty percent, in in like one year, which is uh, good news for them and probably not good news for us. Which makes me very confused as to why they keep demanding more and more and more and more and more and more money. Um, but yeah, one of the things that uh, I wanted to ask Norm about and talk to Norm about and talk to you guys about. Um, I'm not sure if you know that. Like, one of the things that I'm the most interested in politically, uh, living in the UK and specifically living in Glasgow, is. Uh, I think that the the fight around housing is one of the most important fights that we have because in my opinion it's like the coal face of the class struggle because at work things are more complicated obviously there's all different situations that people have at work they're bought into the way that things work more or less depending on how like high their wage is or what their circumstances are and especially if you work in like the public sector if you work for the NHS or the council you're actually doing something that's useful and productive in a way that's like directly helping people not just in in the manner of like producing something that they need but actually intervening to make sure that their quality of life is better and that also puts you in a strange situation 
with regards to the class struggle, where it's difficult then for you to withdraw your labor, you know, like you would traditionally on the left. If something went wrong, your boss was being a, a dick, you wanted to fight back, you withdraw your labor, you strike, you down tools, you go on strike, you refuse to work. Whereas like if you're a doctor or a nurse or an orderly or a cleaner or someone to do like working in a hospital or in any other branch of the NHS, you can't really do that because it would mean people dying, right? Or if you were like a social care worker for the council or something, you can't just be like withdrawing your labor and like letting these people fucking like struggle, uh, you know, remain in abusive relationships or, uh, you know, like have their children like not make being okay or like having foster kids not like get homed and stuff like that or like people becoming homeless when otherwise you would have been able to intervene, things like that. These are all tricky situations. So housing, I think, is a little more simple because the relationship is a little more direct in some ways, especially if you're a tenant. So if you rent a property, you have a landlord who just basically, you know, uh, he's, he's part of this class of people who own stuff and you're part of this class of people who have to like work because you have nothing but your ability to work to sell on a market to people like your landlord or like your boss, right? But you can see kind of directly how they're similar because, you know, you, you work... The boss gives you money, you hand it over to the landlord. It's like, it's a, you're just like a sort of intermediary. You get to hold on to it mm -hmm. briefly. You, you know, like someone gives it to you and then you just hand it right back. You know? People are the small intestine of their money under <laughs> capitalism. <laughs> it goes from the mouth of your job to the, out to the bowels of your landlord. <laughs> and then it sometimes feels like it's coming out as shit landing on your head, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, um... One of the things we know in Glasgow is that rents are going up and up and up and people are struggling to pay and stuff. But in the States as well, like Norm is a tenants union organizer in, uh, in Connecticut. And um, I'm a member of a tenants union here in Glasgow. And, um, you know, so both of us, we'd like frequently when we talk, even like not on the podcast, we kind of compare notes and stuff to see what's going on and what the similarities and the differences are. Because obviously the economic relationship underlying all of these things is the same, regardless of what country you're in. But... I wanted to ask you about how uh, I wanted to like run this article by you that I saw and then get your opinion on something, get you to comment on some of it. Cause uh, it, it seemed pretty crazy to me not being there and stuff that, um, so th this is from CNN. It was published a few days ago and it's titled rents in the U S just hit another record high. So it says that rents in the U S climbed to a new record again, in April, because they have been rising and hitting new records constantly. For years now, yeah, yeah. For years now, like year It's been like a six-year sharp increase that has gone way up in the last three, especially the last year. Because uh, of a lot of different factors, like the pandemic must have had a lot to do with it. Yeah, yeah, but they were definitely increasing before the pandemic as well. Right. Um, but, you know, they've taken advantage of the pandemic and now the inflation as well. Uh, and... Housing prices are just inflating faster than anything else, it seems. Yeah, yeah. You know, the currently, I believe the average, according to the National Association of Realtors, which is not a biased source, uh, it's it's literally the, the real estate agents, the letting agents, as you would call them here, uh, they, they put out a report saying that the average rent is $1,800 now. Uh, which is just absolutely absurd. That is what they say here. Yeah, it's like it's 1827 a month is the average rent, uh, which is up 16.7% from a year ago, according to a report from Realtor.com. And Realtor.com are like a, they're like lettings agents, basically. Um, and like you say, yeah, yeah. 
And they said if the the report projects the typical rent could be more than two thousand dollars a month by August if uh, if current trends continue. Um, and it says here that the continued surge in rental prices is driven by a mismatch between rental supply and rising demand, largely from would-be home buyers. Um, beaten down by the high cost of buying a home, some prospective homeowners are opting to keep renting instead, um, which is also a thing you get here. But uh, people have been trying to buy here uh, increasingly unable to because of the rising cost of buying as well as renting. The, the, I don't know if you heard, but there was a place down in, what is it, like Thornley Bank? It was like the first million pound apartment in Glasgow or something. It was like a flat, like first time a flat has sold for like a million pounds. It was just like a few weeks ago. Oh, no, no, no. That wasn't in Thornley Bank. But in Thornley Bank, uh, the, the, rent, the, the, the price of a house has gone up 7,000 pounds a month for the past year. So it's like fucking insane. And it's like, I don't know. I mean, like Thornley Bank ain't that great, right? It's just like, what is, there's a Morrison's and like a couple of Italian cafes and stuff, which, you know, obviously I approve of, you know, but... Uh, <laughs> But I would, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to live. There. I will say that for that, that sense, there is a little bit bias because realtors and you know a lot of people seem to you know frame this as a supply issue. You know, uh, whereas these prices are obviously inflated by things more than supply. Uh, and their solution, uh, and even a lot of people who would call themselves fair housing activist solutions, is to just build more housing. Uh, and that's definitely not the solution, especially considering that they don't build affordable housing when they build housing. <laughs> because the people who are building, it costs essentially the same to build uh, luxury housing uh, as opposed to affordable housing. You know, just having that space, building the foundation and the frame and stuff is the vast majority of the costs. You know, who cares if there's a, you know, like a... What's something that would build into a posh place in America? <laughs> a bidet. You know, I know you have them here, but if there's one in America, it's posh. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, it's funny. I mean, I guess partly, it is partly a supply issue, but that, that represents some of the increased cost because, like, with uh, Brexit, before even the pandemic, you know, Brexit became an issue because with the new rules coming into place, it meant that um, importing materials and labor from abroad became more expensive. Um, also, when the pandemic kicked in, it meant that there were fewer workers on the job. Mm -hmm. So this double whammy has uh, reduced the number of houses being built in the UK for sure. I don't it's know definitely it's not not a factor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, it's not, not the, prime... the solution. Right. The yeah. only solution. Right. Yeah, exactly. And especially since even if they do somehow manage to get affordable housing produced, like in some places, like the great liberal bastion of Connecticut, right. there are some cities that have requirements for affordable housing. So if you build something new, a certain percentage of it needs to be affordable, but that's still affordable uh, under the rubric that they've created, which is often just tied to the median uh, income of that area, which is probably wealthier yeah. because that's where you're building this property so right. uh you know it ends up not actually being affordable anyway but i mean also adding to the supply issues uh, is the fact that people are just massively buying up properties to to rent them out or to you know turn them into like airbnbs and whatnot right, you right, know right. uh so there, there there are many different ways that we need to tackle that problem but you know one would certainly be to you know decommodify housing yeah and it's funny because i like the the thing that freaks me out the most about uh 
about the situation is uh, as someone who likes to read history, I wouldn't describe myself as like a historian or anything. I'm not like um, an expert on it, but someone who reads history, I enjoy it. You can see all these things happening that happened before, and they often led to very, you know, uh, tremendously like disruptive and, and like world changing events that were both, you know, maybe good in some respects in that they created some degree of change, but they were also, you know, really destructive and they could have been even more destructive had the conditions only been slightly different, which the conditions now are. So you see these similar things happening. And one of the things that I wanted to talk about and to kind of structure the rest of this episode in this event around was telling you guys about the history of just here in Glasgow of like, uh, you know, one of the things that Glasgow is famous for outside of Scotland is the famous uh, rent strikes of 1915. So we're talking like over over 100 years ago. And it's interesting to see how some of the conditions were like really different and unique to like the time period and everything and the, the way that the society reproduced itself. But some of the things were really similar. And, you know, 1915, obviously, one year into the First World War. And Glasgow at the time was a different place than it is now. But, um, you know, uh, it was always famously, obviously, the center of shipbuilding, you know, there's like that phrase that a lot of older Ouija's as well use, like people I work with would describe stuff as like Clyde built, you know, like uh, when something was like built, there was a point at which 85% of all the ships in the world uh, were built on the Clyde. So that's uh, that's like a kind of crazy fact about Glasgow it was like the center of, of shipbuilding. But as well as being the center of shipbuilding, you had loads of engineers, loads of steelworks. And then when the war kicked off in 1914, obviously that was one of the main places where they were building munitions for the war. So uh, you have uh, all these men who were of the age that they were subject to the draft and lots of them signed up. So you have all these men between the ages of like 18 and 40 flooding into the fronts and leaving these jobs so they have to get workers from somewhere else and a lot of workers came from like you know other parts of scotland like the highlands rural scotland moving down to places like glasgow to work in these munitions factories you also have immigrants coming from outside of the country into the uk all over the industrial cities especially glasgow and the, and the areas where they're building these munitions were specific so you have places like um the the three biggest i think from, from what I've read, where you have Govan on like the, to the south and then across the river on the west, you have like uh, Partick. And then uh, in the east end, you have Shettleston. And these are areas with high concentrations of working class families, all these workers, a lot of them working in these munitions factories. And with a high number of people leaving in order to go fight at the front, leaving their like wives, these men are like leaving wives and children behind. And um, the, it, obviously all the people trying to replace them or to keep doing these jobs, uh, they need somewhere to live. So there's a lot of pressure on the housing. And just like now, you have a similar thing where the, the cost of living was rising dramatically because of the war and disrupting supply chains, making everything harder to get and making it more expensive. So right off the bat, people are struggling and there's a lot of poverty in Glasgow in 1914, right? Like a lot of poor people and the working class people's standard of living was much lower than it is now. Um, and then also building materials became extremely expensive um, because they often wouldn't even let you use certain metals for anything other than munitions, you know, like famously um, throughout the UK, there were like these these metal like uh, like gates and stuff that like it's funny because, you know, in Dublin. 
Dublin wasn't subject to this. So Dublin has a lot of these old things. When you see like a park, it's fenced in with these lovely old iron railings and like gates and stuff that, that were in the in like England and Scotland and Wales were often taken and melted down and made into like the fucking the barricades that they built around the trenches and the barbed wire and stuff or the munitions themselves. So everything became extremely expensive overnight, as well as house building being like like shuttered to a halt. So landlords are taking advantage of this here in Scotland, especially in Glasgow, especially in these neighborhoods with high concentrations of immigrant workers, right, in like Govan, Partick, and Shettleston. And so the, the women were largely left to fend for themselves and defend themselves. These working class women organized and created these um, like groups to fight these rent increases because they couldn't afford them as well as the rising cost of living. So one of the things I wanted to, to tell you about was, uh, yeah, I wanted to, to read a little thing, a little de depiction of this. This is a book called uh, When the Clyde Ran Red, A Social History of Red Clydeside by Maggie Craig. And uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna read you guys a little bit from this because I think it's interesting. This chapter is called Mrs. Barber's Army, The Rent Strike of 1915. So as the war progressed, British industry found itself working at full tilt to produce the ships, other hardware, and munitions required to fight it. Many factories were turned over for the duration to the making of munitions. The Singer plant at Clydebank was just one of them, because like four years before this, uh, there was the great Singer strike of 1911 when they went on a huge strike. With the economy roaring up onto a war footing when so many men on Clyde's side had already marched off to the trenches, an influx of labor was required to man and woman the munitions factories, shipyards, and workshops. Concentration on the war effort had put an abrupt stop to the building of new houses. Accommodation in Glasgow was soon at a premium. Realizing demand now outstripped supply, many of Glasgow's private landlords saw an opportunity to increase their profits by raising rents. Very nice people they are, very patriotic. Mm -hmm. If the sitting tenant couldn't pay the increase, there were plenty of people queuing up to take over the tenancy. What the landlords hadn't reckoned with was the fighting spirit of Glasgow's housewives. In 1914, they'd already formed themselves into the Glasgow Women's Housing Association, whose aim was to improve the tenement homes in which they all lived. Their opposition to the rent rises the landlords tried to impose in 1915 was both practical and a matter of principle. So many fathers and sons were away at the war, and food prices had risen sharply. Household budgets were under strain and the improvements needed still hadn't been carried out. Although the rhetoric of the time was that everyone had to pull together for the sake of the war effort, landlords and the factors who acted for them were ruthless about evicting tenants unable to come up with the extra rent. In March 1915, one case hit the headlines. Mrs. McHugh of William Street in Shettleston had fallen into arrears. She owed less than one pound, which even in 1915 as well, like even, let's say it's a hundred times now what it was then as well like a hundred quid that's fucking nothing right so um uh she had a husband wounded in the war two sons serving in france and five children at home when the factor arrived with the eviction order he found himself dealing with not only one woman but also several hundred of her neighbors local councillor john wheatley stood at the head of the crowd the factor retreated and wheatley addressed the angry people gathered at william street Fired up, they headed off in pursuit of the would-be persecutor of defenseless women and children. By the time they caught up with him, they had acquired an effigy, which they burned in front of the windows of his office. Later, they pursued him to his house and smashed some of its windows. So yeah, and like, it's interesting at the time, because like, you had these groups forming, 
And they were able to kind of liaise with each other, like across neighborhoods and stuff, because of the presence of all these different parties. You had the Labor Party. You also had another party called the Independent Labor Party, which was like more radical. And then you also have uh, like the Socialist the Socialist Labor Party or like the Scottish Socialist Party. There's all these different like socialist and left-wing parties, as well as like the Communist Party, obviously, um, organizing people and making it possible for them to like link up these different groups. But largely all of this that's happening was just tenants or and, and housewives organizing themselves. Well, that's what we're doing now too. Yeah, right. Yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. This is a good point. Well, I find uh, the people I'm looking for you. Yeah. No, I mean, it's remarkable how, you know, the first bit you, that you talked about, about the housing prices that could easily be describing today uh, and the movement and the, you know, spontaneous effigies, you know, that's, that's yet to come, but if things don't change, that's certainly where we'll hopefully, or that that's where we'll be headed. Uh, and there's plenty of people organizing, uh, and it's like, it's, it's the easiest organizing I've ever done. You know, there's very little convincing that you need to do of, any, of anyone. You just need to organize them because everyone understands these issues. They understand that they haven't been getting anywhere with them in their efforts to do anything about it. Uh, and when they come together, all of a sudden their voices are, are more powerful. Uh, all of a sudden it's more difficult to just ignore and suppress and, and, and just do away with them and wait for the next person to come who's willing to pay more because they're, they're, every, everyone is desperate. Uh, what, what, tell me more about like what, and when you're in Connecticut and you're doing this organizing, like what does it look like? What kind of issues are facing what are our tenants facing in Connecticut and stuff? Like, I'm sure they're facing the same issues they're facing here because that's one of the big things is no matter where you go, people are going through the same things. Uh, you know, obviously it's the high co the high costs and the, the, the sudden increases in rent is one thing that everyone is facing, but also the problems of the lack of maintenance repairs don't get done uh, until they're, you know, problematic to the point of violating code mm -hmm. you know and then even then you have to get people to come in to you know verify that those codes are being violated in order to actually compel the landlords to do anything about it uh and you know that's often not easy to do i know in hartford which is the capital of connecticut it's a city of hundreds of thousands of tenants and there were three housing inspectors last year when we started our organizing and we just managed to win a victory just a couple of days ago where the hartford city council uh passed a new budget where they now will have 20 housing inspectors which was really great we got the working families party uh, in Hartford to support this, and they actually pulled a few of the Democratic members away from their line, which was to not support this increase, uh, and got them to actually support it, and also more fire inspectors, which is going to be another way that they can compel people. Uh, but, you know, there's other similar things, infestations, cockroaches, rats, uh, all manner of things. People's heat doesn't work doesn't work in the winter. People lose water. All all manner of things that are meant to be illegal. You're meant to not be able to not provide people with things like heat and hot water for more than like a 24 hour period before you have to move them to somewhere. Right. And this happens all the time, and they don't do that. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Exactly. So it's very easy to to 
get people to understand that they're in the same boat. Once you bridge the communication divide, because everyone is alienated from each other. We don't talk to our neighbors. And especially in situations like this, everyone is so paranoid. They're so afraid of losing this awful situation and being in a worse one. And, you know, on top of that, if you do start to organize people, uh, the the threats come, which are also oftentimes quite illegal uh, on paper, right? But they do them anyway, yeah. uh, and they'll threaten. You know, all, constantly they threaten to not recognize tenant unions, but they also uh, explicitly sort of uh, suggest that you're going to get in trouble. You're right. going to get kicked out if you do form a tenant union. Top tip from Spaghetti for Brains. If you're uh, an adult and you have a job and you earn a wage, you can't get in trouble. <laughs> you're not in school. You're not a child. You can't get in trouble. No one can get you in trouble, right? It's funny because I feel like that's the thing that's like one of the most important bits about organizing is that first discovery of like realizing that you're part of this group of people who are having a similar experience to you. And that it's not about your opinions or your beliefs or your cultural affiliations or your views on different stuff or what TV you watch. It's about like the underlying economic relationship that makes you the same as these other people. You know what I mean? Yeah. That you all face these same, that you have like the same problems basically. And unfortunately uh, you can get in trouble. You know, you're not supposed to be able to, but they'll find a way to do it. Right. Uh, and the solidarity is is the backstop to that. Right. To not only prevent you from getting in trouble because everyone else has your back, uh, but also should you somehow slip through and they find a way to get you, it's that solidarity that could potentially end up saving you. Yeah. I mean, Chris Smalls, the Amazon labor yep. union organizer, they fired him, not for organizing a union, but for supposedly violating their COVID rules in organizing that union. Right, yeah. And that's what they fired him for. But through solidarity, he got he got back at them eventually yeah, and yeah, is getting yeah. back at them harder and harder. Yeah. And it's funny because it's the same kind of thing here. It's like where these people are realizing in Glasgow in 1915, especially these housewives, they realize um, that they that they have the same problem and that like when they work together, they're, you know, imagine like 400 housewives chasing off a fucking, like a, a bailiff, you know, well, there's no bailiffs in Scotland, but like a sheriff, you know, or a factor trying to collect the rent. So it's like they're, they're talking about this, uh, Mrs. Barber being one of the leaders, the, the organizers of this, right? In Govan, Mrs. Barber, a typical working class housewife, became the leader of movement such as had never been seen before or since for that matter. This was written a long time ago, by the way. So street meetings, backcourt meetings, drums, bells, trumpets, every method was used to bring the women out and organize them for the struggle. Notices were printed by the thousand and put up in the windows. Wherever you went, you would see them. In street after street, scarcely a window without one. We are not paying increased rent. Actually, what the notices read were, rent strikes against increases. We are not removing, right? So yeah, it's pretty fucking badass, right? And um, there's another organizer called Helen Crawford um, who wrote in detail some of the strategy women developed in the rent strike skirmishes to stop their neighbors from being evicted. And this is uh, Helen Crawford speaking directly here. One woman with a bell would sit in the close, or passage, watching while the other women living in the tenement went on with their household duties. Whenever the bailiff's officer appeared on the scene to evict a tenant, the woman in the passage immediately rang the bell and the women came from all parts of the building, some with flour, if baking, wet clothes, if washing, and other missiles. Usually, the bailiff made off for his life, chased by a mob of angry women. Yeah, yeah, right? And the thing is, is that the ones who are still working, like the men who are still working in the munitions factories and stuff who haven't left for the front or aren't, uh, you know, like just blow-ins or whatever, they would often, that one of the things that made the rent strikes useful for them was the fact 
that um, or the, one of the things that made it possible for the rent strikes to be effective was that they coordinated with the unions who represented the workers in the munitions factories because the munitions were essential for the, the Britain to win the war. And the government and the other capitalists were terrified that if the rent strikes like really hotted up and became like a huge thing and there were like really big strikes and the men working in the munitions factories went on strike in solidarity with the rent strikers, that that would end the production of munitions and that Britain would lose the war, right? So it's an interesting thing that uh, for me, like you can see that the landlords kind of opportunistically increasing these rents, specifically in these areas concentrated with munitions workers, um, and they would use the justification of raising the rents that because it was wartime and there were wartime provisions on the production of weapons that the men were working overtime. So they're suddenly working like 14 and 16 hour days and stuff to be able to meet these quotas of all the stuff that they needed. And they're getting paid overtime. So they're making an increased wage. But obviously they're not making that much more. And, you know, they're doing it because they're fucking working their balls off, right? They're not just like, it's not like, oh, I'm going to have time to go party with it. So the landlords are going, look, you could afford it. That's what they were saying constantly in 1915 in Glasgow. They're going like, yeah, but these guys are making more money. You know, they can afford it. We're, you're paying them overtime. And um, th that's, I mean, that's in insane really because anybody who rents which is probably everyone in this room right or almost at least surely knows that like you know your rent doesn't just go up for the time that you're working overtime like the landlord doesn't give a shit mm -hmm. right you know what i mean like once your rent goes up it never is never coming back down again if anything it's going up again at some point and usually like if they got away with it the first time they're going to try it again the second time right quick as soon as they can so and and also they're preying on a lot of the women who are uh, whose ha whose husbands are at the front because they don't have anyone to defend them. That's what they're counting on. They didn't count on all of this organizing. They figured, you know, they're easy targets. They're sitting ducks. They're soft prey because they're just there alone. It's just like a woman and her kids or whatever. The guy's at the front. Maybe he's even fucking dead or whatever. And they need to put someone in these flats to put them in the in the the munitions factories and stuff. They figure they're soft targets. So that's one of the reasons that all this is happening. Um, and I find it like. Hilarious that they want to talk about uh, they want to talk about like patriotism and to this day there are certain people in this country who still talk about the First World War like it was this great war to you know end all wars and then it was a war to make the world safe for democracy this fucking carnage and slaughter machine fed like just like feeding men into these machines like you're feeding a fucking like wood chips into a chipper you know like um, but anyway the the rent strikes worked because final victory went to the tenants the commission of inquiry that was set up because the government was terrified of the strike becoming like a, an actual nationwide strike at the munitions factories recommended that rents be restricted for the duration of the war although there were rent strikes in other parts of britain it was the glasgow rent strike which brought about this decision that made a difference to the lives of ordinary people throughout britain even the Glasgow Herald, which was kind of conservative, was impressed by the stand taken by Mary Barber, Mrs. Ferguson, and their supporters. They, they quoted, uh, Thanks to the fine stand made by the Glasgow women and the determined attitude of the Clyde munitions workers, the government has introduced a bill to legalize pre-war rent during the war and for six months thereafter. So it's funny when you think about it, like none of this shit just happened out of nowhere. That's what I'm saying. The thing that freaks me out, but also gives me hope 
is how similar a lot of this stuff is to now. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, we're not at war or anything. Um, not well. technically. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, when are we not? Yeah, yeah. When are we I don't not? know about you guys, but yeah, we just yeah. gave $50 billion <laughs> to Ukraine. <laughs> you just bought Ukraine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I know. It's, uh, it's, I mean, it was, like I said, there was the 1911 singer strike the, uh, at the Singer factory where they make the, the, the sewing machines. Um, and there was also in 1919, there was very nearly a revolution in Glasgow, right? In George Square. Like, uh, you had guys like uh, John McLean, who was literally like the envoy from like the common turn, you know, in, in the Soviet Union. That was Bruce, Bruce Willis in, uh, in Die Hard, yeah, yeah. right? <laughs> yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. He was, uh, uh, you know, and, and they were fighting over the eight-hour day, and there was nearly a fucking revolution. They were terrified about it. They even sent, Winston Churchill himself came up because he was shitting his pants about there nearly being a revolution, which 20 years later in like the early 40s, while the Second World War was happening, you have all these Tory MPs like Quinton Hogg saying famously, like, if we don't give them reform, they're going to give us a revolution. Because they yeah. knew. They knew. Because it had been, like, organized. There was unrest, like, throughout the 20s and the 30s. The onset of the Depression came to a head with the Second World War. And then that's why they created the welfare state in the NHS. Yeah. Was sort of like, you know, to make sure that, uh, you know, people didn't fucking absolutely destroy, like, uh, just just, like, overturn the the order of the, of the world we lived in you know yeah and they're pushing people into that now uh i mean in our organizing like people are ready for rent strikes like 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 individual tenants want to do it already like we we sometimes have to hold them back from the notion of withholding their rent uh until that they're they more organized together. to do it together uh because then it will be you know less difficult to target them um but People are ready for it. I mean, if you think that all this unrest, like if you think the people storming the Capitol don't have a similar sort of sentiment of exasperation with their situation, it's just that someone's given them a different outlet to channel it into, which is hate towards other people and, and the government and, right. and immigrants and stuff like that. Yeah, anyone but, but the people who are actually yeah. fucking them over, right? But that's not actually going to get them anywhere other than a little bit of uh, satisfaction in, in the moment. Uh, <laughs> Revolution started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the was the, started. Yeah, yeah. the first blow struck in the rent strike of, of 2022. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. But it's funny because this is the thing that the, you bring it up. Like it's interesting that you bring up like the the January 6th thing because that's the thing that is really important. And I feel like struggle is the best is the best uh, answer for that. Is trying to get people to see like w- th- that it's not about like their cultural differences it's not about their uh their ethnic differences it's not about their opinions it's about like where you stand in like the social order of things and that your un- the underlying economic relationship is the thing that unites you and it unites you kind of like in opposition to this very small number of people who own everything and who are tr- constantly trying to get you to see yourself as like an atomized individual with all these like unique characteristics and all these things about you that make you like incompatible with all these other people who have their own unique characteristics about them. You know, I'm not saying that people aren't unique because they are. Obviously, everybody's got an intrinsic value as just a human being, you know, as like an individual you are, you know, you're like everybody's got these different things about them. And that's just that's just what makes you beautiful. You know, but but it's not it's not the thing that unites you necessarily to other people. It's not the thing mm-hmm. that makes you 
human and it's not the thing that makes you you know like a worker you know being a worker being a person who doesn't own shit is the thing that makes you like most people you know that's the thing that almost all of us have in common and being able to breach that like initial kind of like barrier is to me one of the most important things and engaging in these struggles is a great way to like see that all that like dumb prejudice shit falls away when we finally see that this is the thing we've got in common and uh, or they can or it can supplant it Right. And be the tool that they use to not allow us to come together, to keep us divided, to divide us further. Exactly. Exactly. And to not be bought off as well with like small things. Because the, the, the thing that, that makes me sad as well is the, like you see after the First World War, during it, all these people are organizing and fighting for better conditions in where they live and where they work. And in, uh, they're just demanding like to be treated better. And the Second World War was such a devastating thing for people to live through. Uh, and so many of them didn't, you know, and the people who did survive obviously felt like a better world was owed to them. And rightly so. When you look back, I mean, you can hardly imagine what that must have been like to have lived through that, watching all these people fucking die, you know, and being one of the ones who survived. You must have thought like, no, my kids, man, they can't go through this shit again. Like this can never happen again. And so they demanded it and, and they were going to have it one way or the other. And I think that the people in power realized that. And so they needed to give us these things. And it's like the power of that sentiment. And the power of that organization was so intense, so fruitful, so profound that we're still li we're still living with like the legacy of that and the benefit of that. And it's taken them all this time since the Second World War to dismantle it. You know, they gave it to us. And it's only just in the past like 30, 40 years that they've been able to kind of start dismantling it because people's feelings about it are so strong. And because it's only now that new generations have been born with lower and lower and lower standards who don't feel like, you know, no, I fucking earned that. I deserve that. That's mine. It's your responsibility to, to make sure that I have that. What else are you for? You know what I mean? So I think seeing that is super important. And, and uh, I would like, I want, like, Norm is going to read from The Housing Monster, the book that we did the audio book for, because there's a part in it that I think where he says this, the author of The Housing Monster, like, puts it really succinctly. So take it away, Norm. At a certain point, it's in the interest of business in general to put some restrictions on the business of renting out houses. And the state, as the representative of the needs of capital in general, will step in. Still, an attack on the rights of one kind of property owner is easily interpreted as an attack on property in general. It took decades before governments in Europe and North America intervened in slum housing. The bourgeoisie was perfectly happy to let wor workers die of tuberculosis and rickets, called tenement sickness in Berlin, so long as they did so quietly in their slums and kept having enough children to provide a growing workforce. But the massive cholera outbreaks of the 1860s and 1870s did not stay isolated in the working class neighborhoods. Cholera was in the water supply, and it killed both rich and poor. Fear of death pushed the bourgeoisie to overcome its fear of intervening with private, in, with private property. In response to the epidemic, the first major housing laws were passed in many places as part of public health acts. The push and pull over housing is partially a struggle between employers and landowners. The landlord wants the boss to pay us a good wage, which he can then take in the form of rent. Landlords find all sorts of ways of cheating us, like throwing in extra cleaning charges, security deposits, or demanding key money. By selling houses at a monopoly price, they lower the real value of our wages and take the extra. 
Even if this doesn't get to the point of causing us to lose sleep, get sick, or die from bad housing, it still causes a problem for our employers. Employers are buyers on the labor market, <clears throat> are buyers on the labor market, and they have to compete to some extent with employers in other places for workers. If workers can get the same job for the same wage in two different cities, but in one city the cost of housing is twice as much, companies there will have a much harder time attracting workers. They'll have to raise wages based on the cost of living, and higher wages will make it harder to compete with the companies in the city with cheaper cost of living. Employers, therefore, have an interest in keeping housing costs under control. Landowners and employers may fight each other through wages and housing costs, but this is only a fight over how surplus value is divided up. The landlord only wants our wages to go up so he can charge us more in rent. The boss only wants housing costs to go down so he can pay, he can pay us less in wages. Both of them have an interest in us continuing to go to work and in keeping our standard of living as low as possible. The fight over real wages isn't just between workers and bosses. It's between the working class and the capital class, capitalist class, landowners included. Capitalists have understood for a long time that inflation is as good a way of lowering wages as actually paying less money, especially if they're worried about provoking resistance. For us, it's just as bad to get decent pay and give most of it back in rent or mortgage payments as it is to get shit pay and give most of it back uh, uh, as it is to get shit pay. And give most of it back in rent or mortgage payments. It's just as bad to have a sore throat from the mold or toxic insulation in the walls of our house as it is to have a sore throat from breathing in mold or toxic insulation at work. Our needs come into conflict with the needs of the capitalists we work for, but also with the needs of the capitalists we buy housing from. The landlord wants to charge us more. We want to pay less. He wants to be able to evict us whenever he can find a more profitable tenant. We want security. We want security of tenure. He wants us to skimp. He wants to skimp on repairs and add in as many extra charges as he can. We want the house properly maintained and to not pay extra fees. Capital's push to expand and to create the best conditions for further growth comes into conflict with our needs again and again. True that. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny because like, I just think like it's it's uh, a difficult thing to get people to see when you're just making an argument or whatever, you know, it's difficult to like make an argument that convinces people because it's, it's like complicated. You're talking about this shit. A lot of people just find it boring, whatever. But then they see it when it happens to them, you know, like when you're it's like I always say, like where I work, right? No one I know is a lefty at work. None of them are left wing in any way at all. I mean, not even politically, culturally, just like not on the cards at all. They're just like normal people with just no, they have like the mishmash of opinions that is like the normal voter or whatever, right? But then as soon as the boss tells them, oh, can you like, you know, work extra or like, you know, we're gonna like not give you a pay rise. Suddenly everybody's a fucking communist, you yeah. know what I mean? They're all like, no, fuck that, no, fuck you. Everybody, they'll like find ways to like just do less or work slower or do whatever, like they use all these different methods to be like, no, fuck this. They, they show all this like resistance suddenly, you know what I mean? And just think of how much that, how much control the capitalist class could have if they just weren't so goddamn greedy. I know. If they just weren't pushing it this far, so many of these people would fall in line and have nothing to go back on. But, you know, they're pushing people so hard that it just becomes completely evident to them. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and, and now you have the situation where you you can work a full time job and you don't, uh, and you and you can't afford the the average rent. It's ridiculous. Yeah, I mean that's the thing that's crazy is that like, but it's also because they're not in control, really. I think at the end of the day, you know what I mean. Like it's not just them. Um, and I again like the one. It's it's just always good to remember that like we won all of this stuff. Everything good in your life, all these things that you get, the NHS, uh, like having decent roads, having like air quality, like they won't let it just get like completely polluted. All of these things were won. They weren't given to us. They weren't bestowed upon us out of someone's generosity. We had to fight for them like tooth and nail, you know. And like loads of people died before us getting them. So I think the the last thing I wanted to read from this is just this last two paragraphs that he says in The Housing Monster, when we do take action together, when we're well-organized and militant, we can change the balance of power. We can win wage increases while housing costs stay the same or force landlords to provide better housing for the same price. We can raise the value of our labor and push up our standard of living. But the basic working class standard of living is constantly under threat. The definition varies over time and place but whatever the definition, the combined action of the housing market and the labor market tend to erode it. Today's overpriced, dark, moldy, cockroach-infested basement apartments may well have microwaves and high-speed internet. So we're drawing to the end of the, the, the show here, guys. Thank you very much for coming. And um, before we go, I just wanted to, uh, if, if any of you like uh, have listened to the show before, you've probably heard me talk about the fact that uh, I was just recently like forced out of my, like Amy and I both were forced out of our apartment here uh, the by rising rents and we fought. And it's funny because all of the protections that we've had to use have been like, they've almost worked and maybe they will work in the end, but so far... Even if they've kept him at bay and he hasn't been able to get our money, we've had to live with it since the fucking end of August. And it's like, you know, like, it's not nice for a pregnant woman and her partner to have to deal with this bullshit. You know, it's a crazy coincidence is that I'm also being forced out of my apartment <laughs> by rising rent costs. Uh, and I also was able to successfully stave it off by winning uh, a fair rent commission hearing. Like fair rent commissions are one of the only tools that we have in Connecticut and only in the very biggest cities. Another victory we were able to get this year was to get them to at least create fair rent commissions in all towns in Connecticut that have more than 25,000 people. So a few more people will have access to this. But like... If it wasn't for, again, my obsession with, uh, with fighting these Your guys and the rot. fact that yeah. I already have created a tendency, you know, I'm already talking to my neighbors, yeah. have all this information. I already know housing organizers and activists and would, was able to create a very good case. I would have lost that case, too, and yeah. not be, been able to stave off the $200 increase for the year that I was able to do it, uh, which is coming to an end soon. And wow. I will almost certainly have my rent increase by probably at least $300. Uh, and will not be fighting them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I wanted to share with you this letter. It's an open letter that I've written to the landlord and I would like to share it with you. Not my landlord specifically, just landlords in general. Yeah. This is like my open letter to landlords. I want to share this with you guys and then uh, that'll be the end. And thank you very much for, for being here with us and for listening. Um, and uh, yeah, here we go. Dear Landlord. There's no two ways about it. One of us is going to win. The other is going to lose. I know you're probably unfamiliar with this concept as judging from the way you've dealt with us 
All your previous tenants must have simply disappeared into the ink pot of the wider world. Once your dealings were done and they moved outside of the narrow confines of your formidable email threads, which scoff at social conventions to pop into our inboxes at 9 p.m. on Sunday nights, and even that one time on Boxing Day to ask about a drip from the boiler, which of course was foremost on our minds. You probably assumed that, having gouged your previous victims for whatever money you could get, they simply moved on and by some sort of alchemy made more of that filthy but oh so precious lucre. But now here we are, conjoined in mortal combat. It's true that tenants like us have an almost supernatural power to produce value. I'll let you in on our closely guarded secret, as we feel that through your tenacity, you've earned it. This power of ours, it's our ability to work. It may appear that by some magic formula, guys like you mix people like us into a steaming cauldron of boiling hot property markets, bubbling near to overflowing, sat atop a fire kindled entirely on the mystical necessity of bellies needing to be fed and bodies with girdled loins requiring shelter from the Sturm und Drang of this life of wage drudgery, stirred thrice with the Scottish national spurtle of theoretical five-year plans for tenant protection legislation, and voila! A spectral gust whisks away the lingering vapors, and a balsamic reduction of surplus value appears as if by some dark sorcery impenetrable to ordinary human perception. Rents flow out of us like spunking black geysers of crude oil <laughs> in the dry and American uranium-enriched fields of Mesopotamia. And you, my lucky constituent, sit back and let it flow like a Beverly hillbilly, unaware or perhaps merely uninterested in the occult practices of this, our most praiseworthy and just political economy that is the envy of the irredentist Russians and the wily Chinese. <laughs> but I'm here to reveal another secret to you, my brother in Christ and Adam Smith. <laughs> and it is the secret of thyself. Brace yourself, my friend, for what I have to tell you may knock the tracksuit right off of your flesh <laughs> and the new car smell right out of your brand new car. You have perhaps always assumed that we tenants were merely the base metals, and you the bearer of the hermetic wisdom by which a combination of these became gold. But nay! You too possess the ordinating principle. You too are the philosopher's stone or fairy dust or midichlorians or juju or Reaganomic Spanish fly because you see, you too have the ability to work. <laughs> I know this must come as a shock to you, but let it also come as a warning. Your precious essence as a potential producer of surplus value not only subjects you to the whims of those sorcerers whose power exceeds your own, as well as the coercive forces of competition that scheme and plot to make you even crazier than you are for the greatest possible flow of rents, vainly fumbling with sticky hands to dial up the seemingly bottomless geyser. You see, your black gold is highly flammable. Alchemists before you have perished at the blazing fountain of this mercurial liquid. Once upon a time, in China, 
a dark magist named Mao Zedong spearheaded a land reform movement in which landless peasants were bewitched into seizing the property of their landlords, which was also the means of their own subsistence. Mao's satanic spell unleashed a conflagration of revenge on these landlords, with the otherwise docile and ruminating peasants suddenly meeting out frenzied fire that they saw as commensurate with what they'd been forced to suffer as the raw materials and the alchemy of value extraction. It wasn't pretty. As many as three million landlords were killed. God forbid something like this should ever happen again! <laughs> of course, should you be made to accept ignominious defeat in our struggle over a few hundred pounds sterling, no hellfire awaits you. You can simply gouge money out of a fresh batch of tenants until they too can no longer afford the exorbitantly luxuriant privilege of not sleeping in a cardboard box in an alley off Allison Street in Govan Hill, surrounded by fly-tipped refrigerators and two-piece sofas ignored by the First Minister and her own constituency for decades. You'll be fine in your copacetic fortress of objective market forces, cloistered in the bucolic airs of suburban Lothian, far from the burning hatred of your tenants, which can only burn so long. But mark well my words and heed them. There's no such thing as magic. History is much slower than clock time, but it marches on, and under your aegis, it moves unwaveringly towards destruction. When enough of us start marching in the opposite direction, those still heading towards the abyss may be left to face that fall, or they may get trampled in the dash away from it. There are only a few minutes on the cosmic sundial that separate landlords from tenants, and it only takes one match to set the well on fire. And oil, unlike hatred, burns forever. Thank you. So please, landlords, get a fucking job. <laughs>